Welcome. Hi everyone. So I'm new to this community, so I'm not quite sure what kind of audiences are out there. But I'm happy to say, I'm so happy to see Ian Gray, who I worked with five years ago at World Vision International. And um, uh, I love that you set up for a lot of what I'm going to say. It's fantastic. So. Um, I was in humanitarian relief, relief for 10 years, a humanitarian logistician, and um, I went into my doctorate's program to write about um, humanitarian logistics, actually. What I found is that I couldn't really talk about what was effective humanitarian logistics, because predominantly in the academic community, I realized uh, the work that we do as humanitarians on the ground is hidden. And so people don't really know what effective is, and they apply this idea of um, very similar to the teaching of what we've been taught is business effective. And uh, those two models, I worked in logistics, worked probably in the humanitarian field. We worked most with private organizations and saw very directly that mismatch in, um, in what is effective and um, often had to be the user expert for countless uh, fantastic private organizations that wanted to help but uh, carried these assumptions that didn't translate um, because we have different constraints and different freedoms in these two systems. So I actually ended up doing my PhD with the Red Cross, Red Crescent, on what is effective work, humanitarian work. Um, uh, the organization I worked with was particularly interested in, um, kno knew that practitioners were doing good work on the ground, said we want to come and support them, we don't want to design an ivory tower, um, can you do a study for us on that? So I designed a study, and this was in the context of uh, information needs and technology a little bit, like what can we do for them to get them the information they need. So the problem with that is you have to be able to define what successful work is if you want to study it, and then if you want to go ahead and um, um, find those people. Well, this isn't really well defined in the humanitarian community. It's not as specific as it is in the business community, where profits are very clear and numbers and money go very well together. So what we did to, um, to and probably not, <laughs> so what we did in order to um, bypass that is uh, we recognized that as a hidden work, really the peers know who's doing the best work. And so we did 116 interviews. They were all anonymous. We had a lot of questions about successful work. We asked people to point to who was doing the most successful work and what, what countries. This is Red Cross, Red Crescent Movement worldwide, worldwide but in the, in the lower impoverished countries. Um, so 116 interviews and uh, six country visits, two weeks of ethnographic observation of these practitioners and programs that were named as being the most successful. This is really rigorous evidence-based <coughs> research. I want to talk about this because it's not quantitative. It's predominantly qualitative. And where in the business community we have decades and decades of understanding what numbers mean and what processes work in order to empower uh, profit and customer service, these studies don't exist in humanitarian effectiveness organizationally as an organization. So um, in terms of, I'm just trying to think if I said something inaccurate there, but in terms of, um, of understanding success, we had to point us to that and um, we coded, we do quote, we have to find the meaning, it's where I was going with that, you have to find the meaning of of the data before you can measure the data, right? I can't put a measure from a business model onto humanitarian work because we've 
analyzed and learned what it means for a business, but we haven't analyzed and learned what that number means in this system. And so I had to go to ground level and start talking about what is effective. Then we can talk about how we measure what is effective. So uh, we did the observation and analysis, and we um, came up with, uh, out of these practitioners, amazingly, um, all different disaster contexts, all different geographic areas, um, very common patterns of behavior, and what they defined as success. Predominantly, it's long-term impact. So what we have here is um, 30 behaviors of success-driven behaviors that they all share, and these are the 11 success factors and these four categories I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm going to do it right now. Um, the success, the, um, we call these the must-haves. Basically, the, the patterns, the behaviors that they were doing, the, the practitioners were really based on must and having um, community trust, having an organized community, having community agency in order to have long-term impact. So community trust, and we create these definitions from the data. This is grounded research, so from how practitioners are defining it. So community trust is knowing the community and being known. An organized community is a connected and aware community. This is a lot where you participate methods and what Ina's talking about, you'll see. Community agency is a community acting and advocating on their own behalf, and long-term impact is that the work takes root in community. When I go, people are um, continuing. So uh, they are realized progressively, we saw, that ultimately to get to long-term impact, uh, you have to have, communities have to have agency. They have to be able to name their problem, define the problem, define the solution. Um, in order for communities to do that, they have to be organized, they have to be able to talk with one voice, they, and, and practitioners work really hard to create that space. Um, in order for practitioners to create that space, they have to have established trust with that community or they will not be invited as co-learner or co-creator, you guys might say. So community agency is when a community, oh, so the point of that is everything really hinges here. The success, getting to here is what leads to here and so getting to here is really the big goal of these successful practitioners. So, um, what was I going to say about this? Oh, agency, when a community recognizes and is confident in its own knowledge and capacities, and they come to act and advocate on their own behalf. So a really important part of this is we use the word agency and not empowerment. Empowerment is a word that's often used, but uh, the point is, is that uh, nobody's giving them power. They own the power already, and the practitioner sees themselves as working with the community to reveal the information, um, that they own already and helping them facilitating to act in it in the way that they want to act. And the ownership part of this is really key, right? Um, successful practitioners uh, reflected that really this is the only viable route to long-term impact that you have to have agency. And it's the key to re acquiring and revealing the knowledge needed for that long-term success. So uh, linking that to participation the participation is where the agency is expressed, right? And the information and the data revealed, which is their, um, their knowledge of how they're defining the problem, working together to solve that solution, and owning it. So, um, there was one other thing I wanted to say. 
the ownership keys is key because who is doing the innovation, right? Um, is the practitioner doing the innovation or the community? The community is doing the innovation. Um, and they didn't view it as I get data from you. They, they viewed it as I help you to reveal what's in there. So I said that. Okay, so now adaptation, right? No. Now I'm going to go through these for you really quickly just so you have a background. But the first thing they do is they have to develop trust. These are the three success factors. And um, they all did some element of this. It may have been a little bit different according to their context, but ultimately they all emphasize these things. Um, organize and organizing the community. This was really where we talk about co-creation and participation because this is where practitioners were doing amazing work. Really very advanced pedagogy. Um, acting as co-learners and in, for them to act as co-learners, they had to be invited in as a co-learner. The trust they established enabled them to serve in this role where they could facilitate discovery. And this relates to a little bit of what Ian was saying about psychosocial. So uh, there's a lot of work sometimes to get a community to know that they can speak up and they can speak on their own behalf. So there's a lot of motivating going on. And there's a lot of tying um, once they've earned trust with the community, they also add trust with government officials or the different stakeholders in the community, lending that trust to a space that is safe that people can now actually agree to engage. And then they do these very advanced roles of facilitating and making the space productive. That goes, you go from creating that space to then the agency coming alive. And really important here, I just want to emphasize that over and over again, it was an individual engagement. Again, like Ian says, there's a need to understand a person's motivation and where they're coming from and to be sensitive to it. And even in meeting people's needs, there is a need to do it at the um, most um, individual level. That's what made it successful. And this is the key part here that we're going to talk about they didn't decide and this was really important to them to the point that they're like we don't decide this is something i monitor for myself and so now we can talk about adaptation which is innovation right and it is the space where agency is expressed and long-term impact takes root so the spaces where innovation and adaptation take place were really important to these practitioners whether it was adapting the language adapting a form adapting a program entirely um, having the community give feedback and iterating and being iterative. This was a constant theme, and they would constantly work to protect that space. So it's about, I'm going to skip this because I'm low on time. What I want to talk about now is there, um, there's organizational implications for this, right? A lot of times, um, the decision-making, <coughs> how do we support practitioners in doing this kind of work that allows for this adaptation and this space for it to occur because there's very strict structures often that come from donors. And um, profit-based models, organizational theory, says um, the there's a group of really informed people at the top um, directing, supporting workers to support the decisions they made, right? The knowledge is here. In the humanitarian work, the knowledge is at the bottom, is hidden. And um, they, they request support from the supporting workers at the top, which is the headquarters this time, and they receive that support at the bottom. So here's where the decisions are made. And a lot of times, people coming from the outside, especially the for-profit industry, they're trying to apply this model to here, and it can really muck things up if you start making decisions up here, because you really don't have 
the accurate information because it's, it's particularly hidden here. So organizational theory has not kept up with this. Um, so that comes to the long-term impact where we talk about what the organizational theory, you know, what, the, what these practitioners who had success, some of the things that existed to support that space and the things they were doing. So just four really quick, I'm out of time, implications. Preserving the adaptation space is preserving agency, which is really important for successful humanitarian work. Um, resource targeting of community goals. So where resources weren't constrained, where practitioners could get their hands on resources. If ever they had flexible resources, they would apply it to agency. So if a community had an idea and they, want, they needed a little bit of funding, they would, that's where they would apply those resources because that's where success lived. Um, tech, this has implications for technology because technology operates like a language, right? If it's my voice and I own the solution, then in that case, I'm going to speak best and own this problem, the solution, and lead and do that best in my own language um, versus a second or a third or technology that I don't know. And so if we're going to impose technology on communities, you have to think about how that impacts their agency because agency is the main reason that they are being successful. And if, if, if they're not fluent in the technology, then that could hurt their success. The other thing is um, about data. Data is more than data. Um, we did a second study about technology in this study to see where it emerged, where it helped or it hindered or, or where it was. What we found is it just exists. It's like a part of the environment. <laughs> and practitioners were, the where it wasn't a problem was where practitioners could translate between the technologies. Like they had extra skills. I, I can speak, you know, this community's language, which they're illiterate. And I can also um, speak Excel, or I'll put a person here sitting at the table to do the translation as I get the information and need to translate to the headquarters language. And so people who are looking to create technology I would just uh, suggest that creating one technology is not the solution because all of these variations of different technology and fluency in technology exists. And where we really need help as successful practitioners is creating technology that helps to do that translation between modes. Um, an important part of that is meaning. The second big translation role successful practitioners are doing is they're translating meaning, meaning across these different technological cultures, um, just just cultural cultures, you know, whatever they're Western or impoverished or Eastern or whatever the mix is of the cultures, they understand the multiple aspects and they're doing this translation work. And the final thing I want to talk about is scaling. I've heard so much in innovation, well, you got to get an innovation that scales. But I would suggest that what our study says is that success is actually in the individualization of the solution and the community having the freedom in order to individualize the solution to in a way that is um, they can own it. And so scaling, if you think of scaling, maybe don't think about I have to have the perfect product for everybody, but I have to honor a process. You could scale possibly a process of allowing uh, agency to exist and ensuring it exists versus scaling one solution fits all. <laughs>